Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One, two, three, and... Hello and welcome everyone to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. This episode comes from the book Celebrated Criminal Cases of America and is in the public domain. It was written by Thomas Duke, and the cool thing about this series is that this book is widely thought as one of the first true crime storybooks to be published in the United States. Now, here's the fun part. Well, for me at least. I'm gonna do what I can to research these cases. They range from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, and I'm gonna see what I can find. Did these cases happen as they were told? What was left out of the story? I'm eager to find out. Check out our blog post at truecrime.blog where you can compare the evidence that I found against the story as it was written. Now, if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to the show. It really does help us out in a lot of ways. And the added benefit for you is that when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. If you've already subscribed, I sincerely thank you. I didn't realize getting into this whole podcasting thing that I was going to be looking at stats all the time and uh, trying to trying to grow the show and all that. And I, you know, I didn't know that you could see, you know, your podcasting numbers and all that. And so it's really interesting, kind of the, the backside of things. And one of the good things for it for us is we've gone through a pretty nice um, growth spurt recently. With that, that really does open up extra doors for us and helps promote the show and helps us moving the show forward. So thank you guys if you have already subscribed. It means the world to me. Believe me. Here is the story. The murder of capitalist Nicholas Skerritt by attorney Wright Leroy. Written by Thomas Duke. Nicholas Skerritt arrived in San Francisco in March 1849. And almost immediately afterward, engaged in the dry goods business on Montgomery Street near Bush. Skerritt could never have been traced through life by the money he threw away, and after conducting his dry goods store for 15 years, he retired with a fortune of $120,000, which he invested in real estate. He was an eccentric old bachelor and resided at 503 Bush Street with Mr. Sam Dixon, a stockbroker, who was one of the few people in whom Skerritt confided his business affairs. On August 5th, 1883, Skerritt came home and informed Mr. and Mrs. Dixon that he had met a man named LaRue, who had just made a considerable money in the Colorado mines. He stated that LaRue had a prepossessing appearance 
and that he, Scarrett, had that day consummated a deal whereby LaRue was to rent all of his property with the right to sublet it. On Sunday afternoon, August 12th, LaRue called at Dixon's home and had a conversation with Scarrett. On Monday, Scarrett left home and never returned. On Wednesday, Dixon received the following dispatch from Sacramento. Have made a clean sweep of my real and personal property. To parties from Colorado, going there to complete sale, have one half in hand. LaRue will take charge. Favor him. He is solid and reliable. Signed, N. Scarrett. This telegram aroused suspicion in the mind of Dixon, as it was not worded in the language ordinarily used by Scarrett. He took the telegram to Donald McLea, another friend of Scarrett, and McLea stated that he received a similar dispatch. Knowing that the Donahue Kelly Bank transacted considerable business for the missing man, these two men repaired to that institution and learned that they also had received a similar message. On that same day, LaRue called at the home of the Dixons and stated that he came to take charge of Scarrett's effects and took away all that he could carry conveniently. By this time, Dixon's suspicions were fully aroused, and he notified the police authorities. The case was assigned to Detective Robert Hogan, who ascertained that the deeds had been filed with the recorder, showing the alleged transfer of nearly all of Scarrett's properties to LaRue. On August 27, 1878, a lawyer named Wright Leroy was sent to state prison for a forgery committed in the Alameda County, and although he committed no physical violence, the circumstances in connection with the forgery were very similar to this case. Leroy was liberated on May 27, 1883. These circumstances and the similarity of names caused Hogan to suspect that LaRue was in reality Leroy, and that he could explain Scarrett's disappearance. It was learned that LaRue had made an appointment to call at Mr. McLea's home, and Chief Crowley, Captain Lees, and Detective Byram were there to receive him. When he appeared, the officers covered him with revolvers and ordered him to throw up his hands. It was then seen that a man who assumed the name of LaRue was the convict, Leroy. Captain Lees asked him why he sent three telegrams from Sacramento, but he denied all knowledge of them. And he also denied removing Skerritt's personal property from his home. Leroy was taken into custody pending further investigation. Captain Lees sent to the telegraph office at Sacramento and had the original message forward to him. 
and it was apparent that they were in Leroy's handwriting. It was also proven by experts that it was Leroy who forged the deeds filed with the recorder. When interrogated as to Skerritt's whereabouts, Leroy stated that Skerritt went to Sacramento on Monday previous with two men named Townsend and Miller, and that the three intended to go to Denver, where Skerritt was to be paid for the property which he had sold to these two men. He was then sent back to his sale. After realizing that his statement must have sounded ridiculous in the view of the evidence already obtained, he entangled himself still more hopelessly by sending for Captain Lees and admitted that his statement regarding Skerritt was false, but he was prepared to tell the facts, and then he said, I met Townsend three weeks ago at Geary and Dewpoint Streets, and he told me he was going to make a raise in some manner. At this time, uh, Miller joined us, and shortly after Scarrett passed, I remarked that if Townsend had his money, he would not have to make a raise. I then introduced Townsend to Scarrett, and afterwards, Townsend told me that he would capture Scarrett's person and then obtain his money. The next time I saw Townsend and Miller, they told me they had accomplished their object. I told them that Scarrett's friends would institute a search for him. So at my suggestion, they wrote three telegrams which I sent from Sacramento. When I asked where Scarrett was, they laughed and said that he was okay in Contra Costa County. When a thorough search was made of Scarrett's room, $50, two diamond studs, and other jewelry were found, which had been overlooked by Leroy, but which proved conclusively to those who knew Scarrett that he would never willingly depart and leave such valuables behind. It was then ascertained that Leroy had been seen in Union Square with two ex-convicts known as Jass Dollar and Thomas McDonald. And it was furthermore learned that Dollar went with Leroy to a second-hand store on 4th near Market Street and purchased a mattress and blankets. But it was not clear what use these persons would make of them or where they would be taken. Feeling confident that a murder had been committed, Detective Hogan requested Mr. Chichester, a handyman in Scarrett's employ, to accompany him to the different vacant buildings owned by the missing man. The first place they went to was 1129 Ellis Street, and upon opening the door, both men were sickened by the odor of decomposed flesh which confronted them. They found Scarrett's body, black, swollen, and decomposed, in a sitting position against the wall in a closet, with a blanket thrown over it. When Leroy was arrested, he had several keys in his possession. All of them were counted for, except a key for a yell lock. He roomed at a lodging house conducted by Mr. Perkins at California and Powell Streets. And underneath the mattress, several of Scarrett's papers were found. 
as other articles were still missing, which Leroy took from Skerritt's home. It was decided that the suspect must have another room, and that mysterious key for the Yale lock was the pass key to the house where that room was located. A great number of duplicates were made, and officers were looking all over the city for a lock that fits this key. When one evening, Captain Lees asked Detective Hogan to accompany him to the Grand Hotel. After remaining there for a short time, they left, but when they crossed Market Street, Lees excused himself for a few moments and returned to the hotel. Having nothing to do in the meantime, Hogan got out his duplicate key, and he can attribute his moments immediately afterward to nothing except intuitive powers. For he went to the door of a lodging house just a few feet away, number 620 Market Street. And there he found his key opened the lock of the street door. When Lees returned, Hogan reported his discovery, but owing to the late hour, they decided to investigate further the following morning. When they returned, they located Leroy's room, and in it, they found the remainder of the property stolen from Skerritt's room, which Leroy denied having taken. They also found 12 large cans of chloride of lime, in which he probably intended to consume Skerritt's body at the first opportunity. It will be recalled that Leroy purchased a mattress and blankets on 4th Street, and in addition to that, he purchased carpets at another place. A lady living next door to 1129 Ellis Street identified Leroy as the man who called on her shortly after Skerritt disappeared, and inquired if she seen a wagon call with any furniture for the next flat. When the officers arrived at 1129 Ellis Street, they found the articles purchased on 4th Street, and afterward, Dollar and McDonald testified that they assisted in bringing them there for Leroy. This house was one of the buildings for which Leroy filed a forged deed with the recorder. On August 27, 1883, the coroner's jury returned with a verdict in which they found Skerritt was strangled to death by Leroy. He was tried in Judge Farrell's court and convicted of murder in the first degree. He endeavored to pursue Governor Stoneman to interfere, but failed. And on January 18, 1885, he was hanged by Sheriff Hopkins. I hope you all enjoyed that story. It was a lot of fun to perform. I got to bring out my inner Oki a little bit, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know if you guys could hear the buzzing of my phone, but um, in a very much Oki fashion, uh, we just had a tornado warning for our area. Uh, we do have storms going on out here. And so, very, <laughs> very, very convenient. So, anyways, guys. So, before I get blown away here, 
I want to remind you all, join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Oki Investigations. That's where we post everything. We can talk about the cases. If you have any ideas of anything that you want covered, uh, definitely throw that my way. I get messages on there. And you can also join us at the blog over there at truecrime.blog. Thank you guys once again, and I'll see you all next time. See ya.